Welcome to The Ziggler Show. I'm your host, Kevin Miller, and this is our Q&A show. You and I are not emotionally perfect. We have all had some level of emotional strife in our lives. So the question is, how are we coping with it? That's what I posted on Facebook. I asked literally, what in your life has most affected your emotional health and how are you coping today? And then I put just the example somewhat of trauma, abuse, codependency, addiction, stress, burnout, childhood wounds, shame, family dysfunction, negative labels, or other. Well, the responses came in immediately and right off the bat hit issues such as divorce and angry households, negativity, childhood trauma, birth defects, death of loved ones, domestic violence, addiction, codependency, bullying. But of course, what we want to hear is how are these people overcoming? And that's what we did. How are they healing and finding success anyways? The topic came from my conversation with emotional fitness guru, Miles Adcox. He's our muse in show 659, where we talked about emotional health and wellness and fitness. He's the leader of onsite, O-N-S-I-T-E, workshops.com. And as I am not the expert here and equipped to address these issues, I ask him to join me to field your comments in this Q&A show, which he did. And it was incredible. Miles' humility and experienced insight is profound. This is one of those shows that I think everyone would benefit from hearing. Hey friends, as we reach a thousand ratings on iTunes, we're testing some things. If you find the Ziggler show on iTunes and click on ratings and reviews, it automatically pulls up a list by most helpful and shows reviews that are really old 2006. We want to change that. If you click the drop down on the right and choose most recent uh, reviews, you'll find some new incredible reviews at the top. Thank you guys for those of you who've been doing that recently. Uh, the reviews have a little, was this helpful question beside them? And you can just check yes or no. Will you just check yes on two or three of the top reviews and see if we can get them to show up on the initial most helpful list. Thank you in advance. And again, thanks for the amazing reviews you guys are sending in. All right, folks, here is our Q&A on emotional health with Miles Adcox. Well, Miles, uh, of course, we got a myriad of responses on so many issues. I doubt you'll hear one that you haven't uh, invested a lot of content in uh, before, but everybody's unique. And I, I was some of them, my, my crew grouped together, but then at some point there's just so many good, they're so varying. So I'm just going to throw them at you and you can treat it like one of your sessions right there at onsite. All right. Sure. Yeah. All right. Uh, with first one here, Jennifer, she says, my divorce was traumatic and shook me to my core for years. It undermined my self-confidence. I usually felt guilty so that rather than turning to God for help, I shut him and everyone else out as a subconscious way to punish myself. And it took talking to a counselor to help move past it. Uh, and right after it, Vanessa, uh, another one, she says divorce. It was the hardest thing I've ever been through, but it made me a better person. And I'm much stronger now uh, that things that helped me was God uh, group, individual counseling and social groups. I didn't get a thriving business uh, going, but I learned a lot about myself that serves me well today. I, I mean, that issue right there, I mean, I guess you could say relation, relation. I mean, there, we're going to hit a lot of relational issues here today and some of the responses, but that specific one, divorce from an emotional health standpoint, what do you see? Well, one, it's, um, I, I don't know that I'll say anything that, that, that 
that hasn't is not known, but I, I can share that it's in, it's way more common. And it, even if you know the statistics, it's way more common than you probably ever know inside your community. And I only say that because it, it's unfortunate that that's the case, uh, but it's fortunate for people who've gone through it to know that you're not alone. This is a nor- this is a societal norm uh, that a lot of us deal with, and it. For me, when people experience it, I'm not the only one that walks through this. It takes a little bit of the shame and the pressure off to know that there often are way more factors moving into why some relationships don't work uh, than um, historically there probably were. But unfortunately, the grace and empathy around divorce um, has not caught up like it should. There are other uh, adverse life circumstances that we can deal with that people can walk through and struggle with, but not feel as much shame about. But for some reason, divorce is still very much um, a low shame ceiling condition, meaning it's almost like as soon as you raise your head up from divorce, if the pain of the divorce is not enough, and I know people divorce for a myriad of reasons, sometimes it's appropriate if there's significant unhealth or abuse in the relationship. And sometimes it's just a breakdown of principles over the years. But I'm not as much worried about why it happened uh, as I am about how you reclaim the parts of you that might have got lost relationally so that going forward, if you decide to do relationship again or marriage again, and I've seen a lot of, despite some of those statistics, a lot of people will try to scare you Uh, by saying second marriages have almost twice the likely of failing than the first. Um, And I've not necessarily seen that to be true. I've seen it true if people don't do the work, but people who do the work post and what I meant by low shame ceiling, it's like when you raise your head up from the pain of going through divorce and you smack it on top of your shame, uh, which has been compounded over the years to say, um, this is not uh, something that has bad that's happened to you, you're a bad person because this happened. That's a really damaging message. So you almost have two filters to work through. One, the loss of relationship. Two, the heaviness of the cloud of shame. So as best you can, I just want to give you permission to humanize that experience. It's not necessarily going to make it easier, but hopefully it will make the recovery from it a little more tolerable and successful. Because ultimately, people who go through any adversity, and this is a big one, uh, can come out a lot better on the other side, given the tools to do the work and given empathy over shame. Well, and I wanted to hit on that. You're talking about the low shame ceiling that folks in the first interview that we first talked that we did together, it's show six, five, nine, and we talk more, we got more into depth about that, uh, low shame ceiling, high shame ceiling and that issue. But uh, you talking about blame here. So with this specific, so if we look at relational strife, which again, a lot of people attested to, but with divorce specifically, so are you in essence saying, you know, yeah, this one does have some extra baggage because of the shame, which I assume is in relation to the real or perceived judgment from others. Yes. It's yeah. Because it's one that we don't have permission to fail. And anything that we don't have permission to fail when we do, um, that's going to hit us at our core, which is our core, I would call our worth. So it's going to disrupt our worth. So we go from, for some reason, this didn't work to I'm a horrible human. And it's hard to recover from being a horrible human. Nobody wants to be treated that way, except that way or received that way. But culture kind of tells us we are just due to the history of this condition. And it's not in my opinion, it's not true and it's not helpful. You're just a human being. And for whatever reason, 
And I don't even want to say it was a mistake because it may not be on you. I don't know why the divorce happened. It could have been that you got dealt some really unfortunate cards and that your partner had a lot of trauma in their past and ended up being abusive. And you needed to walk away from this uh, in order to stay safe and healthy. That could be the case. Or it could be that you made a mistake. Maybe there was some infidelity. I, I don't know. I just, I'm more worried about how do you, how do we catch people on the other side mm-hmm. of something bad happening and love them? Because you, you talked about walking away from faith and different things. I believe that's what, what Jesus did is he caught people when they didn't feel like they needed to be loved, when they didn't feel like they deserved or needed love and he loved them. And I don't think as a church, we've often done that to people who are walking through divorce. And I, I love that. I love just the awareness of knowing that if you've got relational issues, divorce has extra baggage because you're right. I, I haven't thought about it, I guess, but if I have struggles as a parent and I have a, a wayward kid or a breach of relation or break of relationship with a kid, it's not near the same level of if I were to have a divorce or admit to a separation or, or whatnot. So I, I like that. I appreciate that. of just knowing that if you're dealing with that, you're in good company unfortunate good company, I guess, but you're not alone. As you said, you're not alone. And, yeah. and I'll, I'll share this is a real quick story. Yeah. That was interesting for me. And I don't know if I've shared it before, um, to, you know, to an audience like this, but I, I was somebody who got to work with, watch, and be a part of uh, thousands of couples and individuals come through our program before I got married. Mm. And as I was watching that along the way, I was seeing some of the worst of what happened can happen in relationships, some of the best of what can happen in relationships. But I saw a lot of challenge and strife and adversity. And what I didn't realize was that over time, I was subconsciously planting seeds back here that saw oh my gosh, I will never get this right. I've seen, I saw so many people that had the challenges of marriage and divorce that I thought, this seems like a, a, a battle that I can't win. And I didn't even recognize, I was the face of a place that promoted healthy relationships and I, I, I didn't want to be in one because I was scared of what that could look like. And when I met my, my, my now wife and we were together for a long time, probably three years longer than we should have been before we got engaged and married. And it wasn't her, it was me. It was just my fear as a professional who'd seen a lot. And therefore there was this unrealistic expectation that gets put on the idea that it was keeping me in a perfectionistic bubble of being able to step in and take the risk, the emotional risk of love and marriage and the beauty that I now know it to be. And it was a, it was a friend of mine from um, she's from another, another country and has a a whole different set of beliefs and vantage point on on relationships that helped me the most of all the counselors and the the pastors that I have access to. It was somebody who knows nothing about any of that, that helped me. And what she did was she just looked me in the eye and she said, what do you want in life right now the most? And I said, I love, I love this, this woman and I want to start a family. And she, she loves me and she wants to start a family. And she said, well then, Sounds like you guys want the same thing. Why don't you move towards that? And I said, well, it's not perfect, though. Here are the things about her and this. And, and I've always I always downloaded the message from uh, faith-based institutions and family and everything else that this is the one thing that you can never mess up. Because mm-hmm. if you mess it up, it, you know, it just uh, – and that may be why the two uh, listeners had such a hard time with the shame of that being their condition – my friend actually gave me permission to fail. She said, if you go into this, let's just play this out. What if you go into it and one, something happens one day and you get a divorce? And I just, I literally lost my breath. I went, 
I, I didn't know what to say to that. And ultimately, we played it out all the way down to, well, I, I would probably survive because so many people do. And I needed somebody to say, look, that's the last thing I want for you. Get in a healthy marriage. And obviously, the principles of marriage, and I know God had a lot of good things to say about that. So we want it to work and be long-term and sustainable. But until somebody gives you permission to not do it perfectly, you're likely not going to do it at all. That is um, that is really interesting. I have not heard that message in that light, though. I did have a close friend that shared that. It's the only other time I've ever heard that. It wasn't. He was looking at. He needed to exercise. You know, he needed to work out. Needed to get fit. And it wasn't until somebody gave him permission to say, "What if you start and fail? It's okay. You're not going to die." That gave him the impetus, and for the next year or so, he worked out consistently. And that's yeah, it's so foreign to. I'm again. I I grew up. I think in the same uh, apparently the same church you did. Um, well, I think it causes a lot of divorce too, because I, now my wife and I were not perfect, but we navigate things so much differently because we had permission to not be perfect before we got married. And therefore we're able to bounce off each other and bounce back in, in a great way instead of always facing the fear of falling off a cliff. Because yeah. if I'm standing on the edge of a cliff and I've got somebody with their hand in the middle of my back, I'm likely not going to get very close to the edge. In the edge I'm describing is the vulnerability it takes to sustain really hard things as a married couple. But if somebody's standing beside me with their arm locked in grace, I'll walk right up to the edge and look at the hard things, which is what we get the blessing to do. Man, that that that's significant. Okay, we could stay here, but I wanna I wanna honor some other <laughs> folks here. And, and now this one's interesting. Uh, here I'm gonna start off. This is not even her question, but my, what I posted, uh, for this show was what in your life has most affected your emotional health and how are you coping today? And Jessica, first thing she says is I don't like the word cope. I feel like cope isn't a good way to handle negative emotions. I, I, I'm just going to give that to you. I, and I'm, I don't, I don't mind having my toes stepped on. I just, I wrote the question. Uh, but is that relevant Do you? I mean, you're in the crucible of emotional fitness and dealing with people's uh, you know, uh, wounds and, and whatnot is cope. Uh, is that a relevant word? Is that a dirty word? I, I tend to, to think it's, it's relevant. Uh, I could, the truth is, is uh, certain emotions are uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that they're bad, just they're uncomfortable. And I don't think we need to, we can't force ourselves to be thrilled about every emotion that pops up. We can force ourselves to learn to embrace those emotions instead of resist them or numb them. Mm -hmm. And I'm basically describing learn how to cope. So I think the opposite of cope would, and this is probably not what she is saying at all, because if she were here, I'd love to talk to her more. Uh, so here that I'm trying to answer this without knowing the full context sure, of what sure. you were meaning. But I think by saying uh, coping is understanding versus trying to, I think we put too much pressure on ourselves when we say you have to accept everything that you feel. Well, that's, an, that's a setup from the word go, because I, I still get uncomfortable with sadness. Like now there's certain areas I don't, if I'm watching a movie or hearing a, a beautiful story, I, I somehow have permission to emote. But if it's an intimate moment with my wife and I, and I feel sad about something, I still have that whole, the man response that says, mm -hmm. don't cry. And when that comes up, I need to, you know, that's coping for me. I need to be able to like, all right, I can either run from this, numb it, or try to stand in it. Um, and, and I think that's a healthy thing to do sometimes. Okay. Well, I, I will go on. I, maybe I should have done that because she did give a little context on, as far as what she's dealing with. She says, what affected my emotional health? She said, an angry household, a home full of angry people. 
And how am I overcoming? She says, therapy, church, changing my narrative, self-discipline. Uh, now, right after that, I'll, I'll go ahead and add this in. Keith said, negativity that was instilled uh, in me from the start as a child has crippled 85% of everything I do. And he says, I'm still there. Um, so there's folks, if I put that under the you know label of what? Childhood upbringing, uh, negativity is what they're both saying. Well, negativity and, and anger specifically are what have wounded their emotional health. So give us some insight into that. I'm sure that's a dramatically common issue. Very common. And thank you for that context. Now it makes total sense. I mean, cause cope ultimately, you know, is, is, is defined as just when a person deals, deals effectively with something difficult. What I was reflecting on earlier was, effectively dealing with uncomfortable emotions that we have ourselves. But when it comes to dealing with the negativity and other people's emotions that can be emotions aren't harmful. It's the undercurrent of stuffing them that comes out sideways is when it gets dangerous. And if you grew up in an abusive or an angry household that they didn't know how to, it's okay for a parent to have anger sometime if they know how to not project that anger onto you and process with you about it because we're all human. So, hey, let, in other words, if I've got my son, uh, when he gets a little older and be able to comprehend and I'm in traffic and I get angry at somebody that cut me off, I need to do a repair with him right. and say, listen, that that wasn't about you. And actually, that probably wasn't an appropriate response from daddy. But let me tell you what anger looks like. That's a healthy way to do it. It sounds like the person who put that question in, she grew up in a household where people did not cope well yeah. with their yeah. anger or emotions. And it came out negatively towards her. So I agree with her that you don't need to sit in that. That would be called enabling something that okay. was harmful to you. So it sounds like she's setting a healthy boundary and getting healthy. Well, and I do again, folks, just to, to give you context on our initial discussion together and show six fifty nine. uh, you actually know, you know what? I think it was, um, uh, show six, six, one, the habits show that we went under and under the relational spoke, uh, in the Ziegler wheel of life there, you talked about one of your primary, your primary methods of habits for relational health was repair because rips are going to happen. And I talked about that just so you know, I talked about that. I kind of pulled that out in the intro and it's something that I have been ruminating on because I don't do so well with the ripping to begin with. Uh, you, you, you kind of gave permission for that. Uh, so I, I appreciated that. And thanks to these sponsors for bringing us today's show. Well, here's, here's a couple that, um, I'm, I'm almost going to couch under the aspect, well, kind of going back to that coping to therapy, to how people deal with it. This is an interesting one to me because I guess it resonates with me personally. Uh, Gregory, he says it was adolescence and family wounds that still tingle from time to time working through it. I'm working through it and still, uh, have a commitment to my family. I have an amazing bride, but he says, I go trail running. That's where I go to lose myself and find my soul. So in essence, how he copes with it right after it, Nicole Hoskins, she says, I suffered for many years due to a trauma as a child, amongst other things. I finally broke the chain of smoking cigarettes and now I run. It's amazing how much healing you can do in a 10 mile run. Running has kept me smoke free for 10 years. I'd probably still be chain smoking and be broken if it weren't for running. I just want to take those that running is my matter of fact, I'm, 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 uh, I, I'll give a shameless endorsement. I'm, I'm still 
standing in my new on running trail running shoes. It's a sponsor of ours. Just sent them to me. They're killer. I can't wait to go run. That is my therapy. Uh, probably one of my primary ones is to like Gregory says, go to, uh, find my soul, lose myself. And so in the aspect of that, of the coping, not to make the focus on running, but uh, I mean, where does that fit in with your methodology on addressing emotional health is finding the ways to, again, I don't know how to use a, a word different than to, to cope or to, uh, self is that medication? I don't know. Tell us where it fits in. I, I, I think that movement exercise, particularly running is, um, underestimated as hmm. a healthy, uh, way to offload, uh, stress and adversity. So I, I endorse it. I think moving is one of the most important things we can do. But I, I will say, even though I'm saying that's a healthy coping mechanism, and if it works, you know, I'm all for what works. Uh, but I would caution only having one coping mechanism. Okay. Because I've seen people get obsessed and just kind of swap um, pain for pain in a sense, and that you deal with one issue over here. And then suddenly, believe it or not, for a lot of people running, moving and exercise can be addictive. And it, 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 what started out healthy, it turns into something that instead of I do this for uh, peace and well-being is I do this to run from uh, feelings and emotions. So as long as you can keep it in check, I like shaking up the way that I cope just to make sure that I get to feel some of the uncomfortable emotions uh, that, uh, sometimes, uh, when we, for me, I love to get outside, anything outside to get away and yeah. nature is a, is, is a beautiful way to cope too. But it also, the negative side of that, there's a negative side to every coping mechanism. I can isolate there and yeah. completely get away from my family and not deal. So I would just say, as long as it doesn't turn into something that's harmful for you or keeping you from dealing with something, then it's an absolutely healthy thing to do. That is interesting. There's a significant number of, Gosh, I, I tend to think of endurance athletes, ultra endurance athletes that I know that swapped an addiction uh, to drugs or alcohol or sex or whatever for the addiction of that. You know, granted, I would I would uh, I'd rather the, the, the latter than the former. But that's interesting. Swapping a pain for a pain. And I relate to that. Gosh, yeah. And going outside for medication and for isolation. Well, you know, again, this is therapy session for Kevin. Thank you all very much. Um, <laughs> well, you know, we talked about divorce earlier and I appreciate the dynamics that you brought up with that. Here's another one. Jessica says, uh, most definitely the biggest issue with her own emotional health has been the loss of a son. She had a young, I know who she is. She had a young son die. And then also her father, she said, I struggled for years with her horrific fear of others around me dying too. I lived in a state of going through the motions for a long time. And I finally, in the past two years have awakened from the fog and really began living again. I have learned a lot to let go of what I can't control and take each day as it comes. So if we put that out on the table of death, which I guess uh, you know better than I do, I guess we could say that's not only the end of somebody's physical life, but death of, and I guess we could take that further into death of, I don't know, can we, a death of, of, of other relationships or is that similar? I mean, divorce is a death as well. Now, again, we don't have the judgment, the, the shame, I don't think baggage with death as we do with divorce, but I, what are the dynamics of death in this? It's, it's, it's complicated. 
but but important. So I'm glad we're talking about it, particularly the loss of a child. I think bereaved parents, as a as a cohort, um, especially as moms, they're uh, they're five times more likely to be hospitalized in the first two years for psychiatric conditions after the loss of the child. Wow. Uh, there and there's other statistics I can't recall right now. I wish I had them in front of you. And the reason I know some of those statistics is our foundation puts together uh, a program that we offer every year where we bring 50 bereaved parents through a week long grief and trauma program. Wow. And so I've set literally set in a circle with 50 parents who've lost a kid, and it is the unthinkable loss. And yeah. it's not exactly like other kinds of grief. And I think we missed that in the beginning when we, cause we deal with a lot of trauma and grief and we used to kind of treat it all, put it in the same bucket. And it's, it's very different. I've learned that from sitting with grieving parents and often it's misunderstood. And what we did honestly with having those parents together for a week, we had a sophisticated clinical uh, model that we supported them with, but the best thing we did is allowed them to heal with one another and just empathize. The very first night when they looked into the eyes of another parent who knew what they'd been through, the tears just started to come and it was incredibly powerful. But the most important thing we did for most, and they would tell you is that we undid messages, harmful messages, harmful, well-intended messages from pastors and counselors who told them they should move on. They should get over it. Uh, it was part of God's plan. All those are incredibly um, traumatic and dangerous to interrupt the grief process. And we look at trauma um, here as, in essence, a grief process. We, we, we teach trauma sometimes through traumatic grief. And there are stages of grief, and I don't want to get too far into them, other than to say it sounds what, she, what she's describing as having two significant losses and then being in fear of having a lot more is she likely got stuck in a stage of grief, maybe shock. And the body biologically has a good way of healing itself. Culture and some of the healing methodologies we have around it, like church and others, sometimes interrupt biology. So we stop it because we're uncomfortable with people's grieving process and we're actually stealing a gift from them. That is God wired that they need to go through the shock, the struggle, of all the stages in order to be able to grieve appropriately. And it takes what it takes. Let me say that to her. Um, it takes as much time as it absolutely needs to take. And in some cases it may never end because the, the, the son, was it a son that they lost or a daughter? Your son. Yeah. The son that you lost. Um, we don't have to, that grief doesn't have to end. I mean, we can honor his name for as long as we absolutely can as, as far as I'm concerned, as long as you're here on earth, that's something that really bothered them is that people got uncomfortable saying the name of the lost loved one. And they wanted that. They wanted that to be honored. So um, I just, that would be my thought on grief is that a lot of trauma is due to blocked grief. And when we get permission to be able to grieve appropriately, then we know that we never want to tell anybody that there's a certain way to do it. We want to encourage people and hold space and give them empathy, but allow it to breathe and do what it does. Now, clearly, if it's so disruptive that it is taking over your life and turning into an unhealth, that's not natural grief. That's where it's moving into something else that you may need support on. But if you're feeling some of the symptoms that you described, then that's, that's, that's pretty normal and you need permission to be able to do that. If anything, it's one of the best ways you could honor your loss. You, you know, I, I, I actually want to stick on this just for a second more miles because here we are admittedly in the personal development, self-help 
segment. I mean, that's the industry I'm in. That's the audience. I mean, we're here to, you know, to better ourselves, to inspire our true performance. That's the you know tagline of the show. And yet I, I'm going to speak for myself, but I know that it's somewhat prevalent in this arena and I'm not going to blame this on anyone. This is the formulation that I had in my own mind as I grew up is that uh, kind of a coaching perspective as opposed to counseling that, Hey, you know, I want to know where you're at today, where you want to go. That's all I care about. Let's just talk about, I'm not your therapist. You know, I, I'm, I'm not going to go back here and, and look into what's happening. I just want to know, where are you? What do we need to do to get to this goal that you have out here? And I pursued that in my own life as well until I hit a, uh, a plateau. I, I don't know. I felt, I felt anchored. And it was finally when somebody told me, look, you cannot discount your past. And I, I'll admit, I don't have, a, I have a privileged past, but there's still stuff that happened there that I had to go back. And until I did, uh, I wasn't free to go forward. And that's a consistent process with me. So all that to say, you know, in that, is that something that you see pretty significantly is that, yeah, we are not, supported in, educated in, knowledgeable enough, aware of that we do need to feel that feeling. We need to work through that grief. If we try to just go forward too quickly, we're missing out. Well, you said almost in essence, a gift, uh, a gift, you know, from, from God that we should have, but also just the necessary mechanics needed to be able to go forward successfully. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with you and I, you know, we, we may not like dwelling in the past, but you better believe the past dwells in us. If we, if we don't go back and reconcile the parts of our story uh, that don't serve us, then it, it can follow us. Now I, I'm very much, I'm a, I'm a certified as a coach too. So I, I very much believe in a coaching methodology. Um, and I think there is a, place for both. I think there's a place to, to carefully go back into your story. And I think there's a place for just starting where you are and going forward. I think it depends on the circumstance and the person. But I, I when I was getting my education and certification in the coaching process, it was hard for me because I know the value of going back. Hmm. But I also understand the coaching model. And it just depends on the issue, I think. But I'm a big fan in, in going back. However, I want to clarify that because we found in trauma work that it's not necessarily going back or going forward. It's how that process is done because there are often elements of painful circumstances in our past that we, we've learned that we don't need to go back and relive. Um, And this, again, this is my, my Mm. thinking. There'd be differing points of view here. There is therapy. There's a uh, modality of therapy called exposure therapy where they kind of put you back into real life circumstances. And they've had some success with that with certain people. I personally am not uh, a huge fan uh, because of, well, if, if it's a, if it's treatment resistant and nothing else has worked, then I'm open to trying a lot of different things that I may not love as a first offering. But I, I, you, we, we run the risk, and, and, I, and we did this a lot early on in my career with this place, is we would take people, we were so invested in getting people to go back into their story and relive parts of it that, in essence, we were regrooving some of the neural nets and re-traumatizing people. Goodness. And so we've since learned that unless you go back and really, if the container's not set and it's not, there's not psychological safety currently and going forward, then it's more harm than going back than, than not. Um, so I just say, 
it's important and be careful with it. You don't often have to go back and look at every detail, but you can't acknowledge that the past does follow us unless we get the chance to rewrite it. Goodness, that's significant. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm glad we hit on that. You know, we, as we hit these different topics, here's another one that I assume has its, again, own set of specific baggage, uh, for lack of a better term. Uh, Tara Nutson, she says, her issue was domestic violence. She says, I faced a loaded 45 more than once. The worst part was the emotional part of the abuse that I didn't even recognize at the time. It's been years now. I know my worth and I'm able to support and uplift others too. I'm married to a man who protects me and our marriage as well. We've had our own bumps and life isn't always easy, but it sure is amazing to whomever is still walking through the darkness. Don't stop. There is light and hope ahead. Would you speak to that though? The domestic violence. Now she, it sounds like she's talking about in, in a marriage. Obviously we have a lot of people that did at the hands of a, of a parent or uh, an authority figure or whatnot, but what are we looking at with that? I can't help, but you know, there are a lot of things that could lead to someone um, being violent or abusive to the person closest to them. We could look back at their history and their trauma and their mental health and all those things. And even though those are all real factors, I can't help but think this skewed picture and version of masculinity that we get fed unconsciously since from when we start as a young boy all the way up into current time, unfortunately helps feed that. Mm. We don't have anywhere as men um, often, uh, we don't have as much permission to be able to feel and to emote and to offload things. So therefore we compound things and things become violent. And whenever, um, and I've worked more with, I will be honest, we've worked more with victims than we have perpetrators. So I in no way am a specialist on the perpetrator side people, but we've had people who have come through uh, programs that have done things they're not proud of and have tried to find redemption and recover from that. And most of them had a very trauma in their past and a very skewed perception on what it means to be a man Mm -hmm. and masculinity. And when we start, so I think there's a, I I guess I'm speaking more to a global issue that I think once we shift the paradigm on what we've always thought a man's man was, I think we'll see some of the statistics around domestic violence start to go down because we know most of it is, is, is man to woman. Um, But, but more specifically to, to who wrote in the question, I, I'm just sorry about that experience. One, um, I'm excited that you found a safe relationship and and got a a deserved second chance. And my favorite part of what you stated was that you're now taking that and using it to to share and help other women. Domestic violence survivors, uh, no different than grieving parents, are a group that uh, put them together and they can do things to heal one another that a counselor never could. Um, you need both. You need professional support. But the fact that you find um, it a calling to pour out part of your experience into the hearts of other women that might feel trapped or scared to speak out is so huge. So I just want to applaud, applaud that. Yeah. Goodness gracious. Here's this is interesting. Um, these were both put in. Oh, I, I lost you here. Oh, hold Can on. You hear me? Hold on just a second. Okay, uh, Miles. Here, this this was interesting. Um, these were two short statements given by two different guys, and again, in regards to what most affected their emotional health. Roy says, "What affected me most has been my reaction to what has happened, 
not the events themselves. Wade followed right behind him saying, what affected me most is the emotional triggers that seem to appear from nowhere. I guess my first thought in that, and I'll throw it to you, is, is that possible? Did those emotional triggers happen from nowhere? Or would you say they came from somewhere? Likely. I mean, they likely came from somewhere, but um, I don't know that. Um, I think that's just kind of a word, semantics on the words. Okay. But, uh, triggers can feel like that because that's just what they are. I mean, if we knew they were coming, they wouldn't be called that. But uh, often we have buried emotion or old pain and it could be tethered to something in current event. That's the thing. That's what's great about what's happening in, for example, corporate climate right now is I have more companies now trying to hire us to come in and teach emotional wellness, emotional intelligence, because that old theory that we can separate uh, personal and professional um, is a myth. I mean, now granted there are boundaries about bringing personal into our professional life. But when you're in high stress, tense situations, and if you're in a vulnerable workplace, that means you're going to have to have hard conversations. You better believe you're going to bring some of your old story into that and you're going to be triggered by things at work. So the more we integrate them, I think the more we're integrated as a human being. But yeah, triggers, sometimes they'd absolutely feel like, man, that came out of left field. But usually it is tied to something. Okay. One of my favorite things that, that Dr. I think, I think uh, Brene Brown said this, um, was we don't uh, connect the dots until we collect the dots. Goodness. Okay. Yeah. There again, that's, that's been my most relevant journey as of late is going back and doing some collecting so I could connect. That's good. Good call. All right. Well, Hey, I'm going to, this one we'll, we'll probably end on this one here. This is significant. Audrey, she says, I believe our negative emotions are the direct result of, lies we believe which become so ingrained and familiar they feel like more than just the truth they feel like who we are for most of my life i walked out of step with my true identity by believing lies and in so doing i cooperated with the enemy in my own destruction there's a type of pain that we endure walking in our false identity which we become so desensitized to that we eventually forget what it is to be pain-free. Nothing's more debilitating than a wound we no longer acknowledge. It isn't just the circumstances and traumas of life that cause our emotional pain. It's what we tell ourselves about those circumstances that causes the pain to live on. Our negative beliefs immortalize our pain. There's a lot there. Yeah, uh, there is a lot there. I, you know, the one the, as, the aspect of being desensitized to that pain. I just had somebody in the past few days and I can't remember the gathering I was in talk about leprosy. And I didn't really realize that that's what leprosy was. It was, you know, you get a cut, you don't know it's going to uh, infect rot off and you're not aware of it to the degree. That's one of the parts of that. So for her to put that in this where we, cause my gosh, you know, that you know that more than, than anybody probably the, well, Speak to the dangers of being numb to the pain, I guess. Can we summarize it there? Yeah. And, and there, I, I, th I think most of it does come uh, from what I say that um, I think most all pathology describing pathology as resistant to change mm -hmm. stuck behavior is rooted in some kind of trauma. 
That's, that's just my belief. And I've seen that from working in the addiction side to eating disorders, to depression, anxiety, and mental health is that uh, for a long time, we were treating the wrong thing. And we were asking the wrong question in that we were asking people what's wrong with you instead of what happened to you. And when we start asking the right question, then we stop treating it as a symptom and try to now, granted, there's a life-saving component of symptom management. Like if somebody is, is bad in their alcoholism, then we got to get them sober in order to keep them alive. But if somebody's 30 years sober and still miserable and never dealt with their core issue, then I sometimes ask, what's the point? So I think there's a narrative that drives most of it. Um, I wouldn't be so harsh on the narrative because the narrative was born from something that likely you didn't deserve. Um, and I, it doesn't have to be this big because I'm with you. I had a lot of privileged moments in my upbringing, too. But culture has a way of sending traumatic messages towards us. The beauty industry, uh, you name it. All of us uh, are susceptible to self-worth, um, negative self-talk, uh, comparison, all the things that can take us out. And I, I'm not I'm usually I try to be a little more gentle than calling them lies, because for some reason um, they're true for us in the moment, even though they I wish they weren't. Um, I like to inventory and assess the truth to find out how big or small it is. So is this true uh, between one to ten? Zero meaning um it doesn't feel true at all. 10 meaning it feels so true that I can't separate from it. And then try to move along that scale between one to 10 versus saying it's a truth or a lie. Cause a lie implies that there's something wrong with me that I would actually believe or think that. And therefore it's a setup because you're going to, it's going to come up again. And I'm more of, all right, if negative self caught or old beliefs come up or things that we believe in ourselves that don't serve us, I, I keep, I, they, they still have a seat at my table. They're just a lot quieter because I've got all these other positive attributes that can quiet them. But I'm kind of kind to them. They served a purpose. They drove me to places that sometimes were painful and sometimes were helpful. But I think for whatever reason, they were truths that were born out of a lie instead of they were lies themselves. Goodness. You know, I I feel doing a disservice to everybody. I'd love to get to all the questions, but um, this is significant. Thank you for giving us a, not that that was the point, but a glimpse into what you do there at on-site uh, workshops. I know this would probably be just the tip of the iceberg for the issues, but man, I appreciate you just helping us be more aware. Um, I, I know that's such a big part of the beginning, but thanks again for giving us your time, uh, for the third time and, uh, so grateful for what you do, Miles. Well, this is really fun. And, and I, I'm just passionate about this topic. It's a little more long winded than I hoped. I wish I'd have got to more people, but I, I just really get excited about some of the questions. And I need to say here too, is a, that I, this is not counseling or coaching advice. This is just me as a human with some experience on the professional side, sharing some of my experience. That's all. So if it doesn't align with you a hundred percent, because there were such wise uh, questions and thoughts that, that came from our last conversation. And I just appreciate you caring and listening and, and writing in and hopefully what I added was helpful, but if it wasn't, you can leave it. What you added took any intent that I had and multiplied it by a hundred, man. Thank you so much, Miles. Um, beautiful, beautiful content. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, goodness, such significant content. I hope you gleaned as much from Miles Council as I did. Again, connect with Miles at OnSite, that's O-N-S-I-T-E, workshops.com. And if you got value from the show, let us know. Leave a review in iTunes for The Ziggler Show and mention Miles. 
Coming up next in show 665, we have our habits show. We're back with guest Michael Hyatt. I titled it Constraints for Innovation. For me, that's an interesting title because if there's anything I don't like, it's constraints. Not a word I'm fond of, but Michael gives us a compelling reason to desire them. Think of structure and boundaries and even guidelines. It's what I benefited most from hearing myself in the show, and I think you will want to hear what he has to tell us. Till then, thank you for letting me walk with you as we inspire our true performance together. Mm-hmm. 